You can cuss all you want. Welcome to the Protectors, Daryl Hornbeck. Daryl and I have been buddies for years now. Jeez, man, since 2006? Yeah. 2006. So that's more than years. It's like almost we're going on decades. Daryl is a retired first sergeant EOD um, and just an all-around good dude. Um, his ex-wife might not say that, but he is a really good dude. Daryl, welcome to the show, brother. Thanks, Jason. Glad to be here. Your very first podcast. Let's let's get rid of those nerves. Drink your water. We're gonna chill out. It's gonna be just like we're at the racetrack right now, having a nice conversation, brother. I like it. Yeah, uh, and we're gonna have to elaborate on that. So I like it. So let's talk, man. You EOD. Why was EOD your first choice? And let's let's get that thirty thousand foot overview of your military career, and then we'll get a little more into the weeds later on. Well, it's funny you say 30,000 feet. Um, it's more like 800 feet. I actually joined the Army to be a, a little paratrooper. And I uh, did my first enlistment uh, in the 82nd Airborne Division. And then I was getting ready to re-enlist. I had just won the uh, Devardi Trooper of the Year and uh, had the red carpet rolled out in front of me and was going to get some... Oops, hold on. i got to pause right there. So you said Devardi. Did you join as artillery? I did, yeah. Were you a 13B or a 13 Fox or what, man? I was a 13B for about six months, and then I reclassed to 13 Romeo. Okay, I was a 13 Bravo, brother. 13 Bravo, that's where it's at. Okay, yeah. so go on, Devardi, and then you had a chance to re-enlist. Yeah, so I was going to re-enlist as a forward observer and you know go to Ranger School and do all this stuff. And uh, my battalion sergeant major sent me out with all the fisters to cross train. And, uh, I was working for this Sergeant and he just shook his head at me and he said, what the hell are you doing, man? You don't, you don't want to do this the rest of your career. And you know me, I'm, you know, 22 years old, something like that. And, and he said, you need to find a job that has a job skill on the outside. And I said, well, what the hell is that? And he said, if I was in your shoes, I would go check out EOD. Had no idea what it even was. And uh, so I went and talked to the EOD unit there on Fort Bragg. And uh, about a month later, I packed my bags and was. Uh, what time frame red- was this? That was 1997. Oh, so this is you're still in the, the, the Cold War. Oh, yeah. Peacetime war like I am back in the day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I went in. I went to basic in 95. Oh, okay. I was going to say, man, if you, if you told me 93, I'm like, oh man, we probably ran by each other though. You no. know how funny that would have been Delta first and the 19th Fort <laughs> sale, Oklahoma. I, yeah, I was uh Charlie first 30, first of the 33rd. Oh, that's funny, brother. So EOD, you go down to EOD and you're like, huh, what's up guys. Let's uh, and this is, you know, EOD back then was a lot different than what it obviously what it progressed. Oh into. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. A prime example of that was, you know, when that sergeant told me about it, I'd never heard of it. You know, I'd been in the army for a couple of years at that point and had never even heard of EOD. And I get directions to this compound and it's like out in the middle of nowhere. And I pull up there and it's like a fenced in compound with privacy slots on the fence. So you can't see inside and just a big EOD badge on the gate. And, uh, I go in there and, 
you know, there's just guys walking around with, you know, half their uniforms on and, you know, there's guys out there training, doing rope and line techniques and all this other stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm like, Hey, I'm wanting to talk about joining. And they're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> But yeah, they just didn't give a shit. It was, it was pretty cool. <laughs> so you, you're getting to EOD then you go to the school and you're like, ah, cool. We're going to disarm bombs. Or was it, or was EOD like to me in my mind, I always think I'm like, okay, we're going to, there's going to be like a box. There's going to be wires out of it. We're going to learn how to like to cut the green wire and all this other stuff. What's the, what's the training for like for EOD? You know, back then a very small part of the training was actually geared towards improvised explosive devices. You know, I mean, you go through your first three quarters of the school my dad just showed up. Um, you go for your, your first three quarters of the school uh, and you're learning about ordinance. You know, I mean, uh, uh, the first, I don't know what it was, three or four months, I was at uh, Eglin Air Force Base, Florida. And that's all it was, you know. I mean, you're, you're learning all the different little tools. You're learning basic safeties, things like that. We finished the phase one and then we went to Indian Head, Maryland uh, for phase two. Uh, where we actually got into ground ordnance, air ordnance, all that stuff. And you had to basically go through all that, which was really intense, you know. I mean, you, you'd spend four days, uh, you know, and each day you'd learn about 100 hand grenades. And then after four days of it, you would have to take a test on 400 different hand grenades. You wouldn't have any idea which ones you were going to get tested on. So, um I, I wish my brain could still retain things the way it did back then, but yeah, not so much now. Well, you know, that's what happens when we get older, brother. Um, so EOD, you know, nine, where, so obviously nine 11 anniversary just left. Where were you on nine 11? I was in Korea. So uh, I was, I had about a week left in my one year tour in Korea. And uh, so, you know, obviously it was nighttime at that point. And I just come in from the gym and, uh, you know, got some dinner and whatnot. And somebody said, Hey, come check this out on TV. And, you know, in the day room, there was just a whole group of people around the TV and it, you know, it was really surreal. Like, you know, you can't believe this is happening. And, uh, they actually tried to keep me in the, the unit there in Korea and keep me from traveling to the States because they were worried that they weren't going to get a replacement for me. Um, and I ended up kind of skating out of there under the radar and, uh, yeah, flew back to Washington. I had about four days of my leave and then I got called in to report to Fort Lewis. I oh, know shit. You, um, so did you deploy right away? Yeah. Yeah. We went to, uh, K2 in Uzbekistan uh, we were there for about three weeks. Uh, we It was a rough three weeks because we didn't really belong to anybody. Here's this, you know, EOD company that, you know, well, what division or do you belong to 10th Mountain? No. <laughs> do you belong to, you know, uh, 5th Special Forces Group? No, we're, we're just EOD, you know, so nobody knew what to do with this. Um, so, of course, 10th Mountain tried to make our life really miserable. Um, and then... Uh, about three weeks into living there, 
fifth uh, special forces group came over and said, Hey, we, uh, we need a couple teams. Um, so, you know, next thing you know, uh, my partner and I were in the back of a Chinook riding on the hood of, a God, it was one of those little four door Nissan pickups hanging onto the windshield wipers while they're flying us in. And we went into Mazari Sharif, uh, Right before the prison uprising happened, uh, we actually lived in General Dostum's compound uh, for about a week uh, before we moved across town and basically occupied a former school. And yeah, that was the next couple months of my life was Missouri Sharif. Holy shit, bro. I didn't realize all that. Um, that must have been an interesting tour, you know, it, just because like, you know, you're coming for your peacetime most of your career. And then all of a sudden you're like, huh, I'm in war. Was it like, what was that like that realization that says, huh, what is it, it like? It was a lot more normal than, you know, you do all this training, like you're going to be in combat and you watch all these combat movies and you think that it's going to feel different when you're in the middle of it. And you, it really doesn't, it, it's way too normal. You know, I remember our, our first time out, we're running around in this little John Deere, John Deere Gator. Uh, with a couple satchels of explosives in the back and some gear. And we're out, you know, surveying some areas where we can start landing aircraft. And uh, I remember a guy started taking some pot shots at us. And uh, me and Mike looked at each other and a bullet skipped between us. And we we're like, uh, shit, somebody's shooting at us. You know, it's kind of, we, we kind of pause like, oh, hey, we're in combat. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Is it one of those things where like, huh, maybe we should shoot back at it. It's almost like uh, you watching we black Hawk down and all these like zipping around like, well, uh, should I fire? <laughs> like, yeah. Oh yeah. You're just like, Oh, Hey, you know I mean? You, you could have easily been on Yakima training center, you know, the same terrain and everything. And it could have been a training problem. You know, you come up on, you know, 50 mortars scattered around an mm -hmm. area and you're kind of checking it out. And then all of a sudden somebody starts shooting at you and you think, uh, well, I, I guess maybe we should take some cover at this point. <laughs> like that must have been uh, after afterwards. I'm sure it was pretty unsettling to think, wow, you know, maybe one of those pieces of metal or or uh, anything could have just really punctured me and killed me. Um, not really. You know, you you move from one mission to the next that you don't really you don't really have time to process it. And when you do finally have that time, it, it, there's so much of it that you don't really hone in on one little thing. You know, I, I look back now, 21 years later, and uh, I, those were some of the best times of my life. I'm know? sure the uh, adrenaline factor, and we'll get into adrenaline and, and stuff like that later on. And, you know, the press it for, for, you know, one of the reasons we're talking to your team, but you know, I really want to talk about like when that, is that like a standard, your first tour, is that like a standard army tour of like a year, 15 months? Well, we started off with them saying a standard tour for, for EOD was six months. And that first tour, I think we ended up there about eight months just because, you know, there was, there was no infrastructure in the country. So it was kind of like, you know, there's two EOD companies, one in the north, one in the south. Uh, we got to figure out how to train up two units to come replace you guys. And there was there was really nothing there to kind of 
start getting into a routine because we were the first ones there. Uh, but they got the the follow on units from it, and then it kind of became a standard for a couple of years that EOD was going to do a six month rotation. My my second time there, uh, we did a six month rotation and and actually made it out at like six and a half months. I can't hear you. Professional podcaster here. Professional I know, podcaster. Yeah. You put it on mute. You know, a lot of people are like, well, damn it, he's in the army. He should be there a year. But I can understand EOD. You're doing a lot more outside the fence than normal people. Now, when this is the beginning of the war, it's Afghanistan, but this is before Iraq. And I'd imagine the enemy wasn't quite up to snuff when it comes to IEDs, VBIDs, and, and whatnot. Were you doing any of that type stuff? Were you doing like more like route clearance and, and landing uh, clearance paths, stuff like that? So route clearance hadn't really, I guess, been invented at that point. You know, I mean, not in the scale that they started doing it in Iraq and Afghanistan. We, we basically were driving around and I think, you know, and especially working for fifth group, they would just go into town and, buy us a Toyota van and say, here, this is your rig, you know? Um, and I, you know, we'd be just rolling around town in a Toyota van with one interpreter and a combat controller with us. And we'd just go out to the Missouri Shreve airfield and start, you know, blowing duds. And, you know, there were some, what we call command detonation, um, improvised explosive devices. And, and they were more set up for, the guy who was guarding that area, if they got overran, he could, you know, set the shot off, but it, they were just in place. So, you know, we had to trace out some wires and we, we found a lot of old Russian uh, mine fuses that were set up as trip wires and, you know, little things like that. But yeah, everything was a lot more crude back there in the first, you know, initial push. Well, returning from that war, uh, that combat experience it must have been a lot different than later on in your career. And so you get back, you adjust to your civilian life. When is your next tour? Let's see. So I got home, I think somewhere around June or July of 2002. And then a group of us spent a whole bunch of time at Redstone Arsenal, helping those guys set up uh, pre-deployment training. So we actually helped them, build the course that EOD units will start going through before they deployed. And we took a lot of our incidents and things like that, that we ran and let them develop uh, training problems off of it. And then we turned around, how was it? December, 2003, uh, right back to Afghanistan again. Damn, bro. That was a quick turnaround. Uh, well, that's the thing is back then I'm imagining there wasn't a lot of EOD teams out there. A lot of EOD companies and units. Yeah. So when that all started, there was usually about one EOD company on a base, you know, and they had their area of responsibility and, uh, you know, an EOD company was 24 people. And over time, you know, we ended up basically over doubling in size. You know, the size of an EOD company went to 44 people. And you ended up with a lot of the bigger bases would have three or four companies in a battalion on the base. 
Now, when you head back for the second time, what is the, what's the environment like that? So I, I did notice that it was definitely, there was a lot more infrastructure there. You know, your, your two main bases, uh, Bagram and Kandahar had grown, you know, I mean, they, Hey, we got a Burger King now, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, and I, and I always say that you can tell how inefficient we're becoming, uh, at fighting by how many field grade officers there are on the big base. You know, if, if you can walk to the chow hall and you only have to salute 10 majors, um, versus 20, you know, that 20 is when you're starting to hit combat ineffectiveness. You, uh, you got to read that book. I think, I don't know if I sent you a copy yet. It's the, uh, first casualty, the nine 11 book. And, okay. uh, Toby Harnan. It it's, you know, he, that's what he talks about. He's like, Hey, you know what? When they first got to Afghanistan, they were killing a bunch of people and then they started sending officers over there. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I was an officer, but I, you know, my experience is a little bit different than most officers, but, uh, yeah, um, it's true. When you start having the goody times and all that other stuff, really are the mission of the military. And I'm talking, I'm preaching to the choir here is really to kill the enemy, you know, yeah. hold ground. So I'd imagine your next tour would have been Iraq. Uh, my third tour was Iraq. Yeah. Where you and I worked together that you must've, I mean, you had a full head of hair. You must have pulled it all out having to sit staff with me for God knows how long. I did not have a full head of hair I know, when you man, and I worked it. together. <laughs> I had a I had a seventy five percent head of hair when I left for the first deployment. Yeah, and uh, a lot less when I got back. And I, I think a lot of that is probably the alpha contamination from mm-hmm. uh, K two in Uzbekistan. It, Turned out we were actually living in a former Soviet bomb dump that they had had uh, nuclear yeah. weapons sitting in. I uh, so you you do the Iraq tour that's last for a while and, and basically that's where I met Daryl and we had some good yeah. times. We talked a lot of shit. Um, <laughs> we talked a lot of shit, and um, yeah, man. So your career goes on, and then I'd imagine that's when the loss started that's when you started losing friends and losing teammates. And that must've been like, damn, man, it's fucking blows. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously that, as you know, the, the IED fight started becoming a lot more sophisticated at that point, e- even by my second time to Afghanistan, you know, we were start talking about, um, you know, radio control IEDs and things like that. And, um, things did start getting more sophisticated. The, uh, my fourth tour, which was right after I got back from working in Iraq with you, uh, because I was an individual augmentee when we worked together, so I deployed by myself. I actually tried to stay in Iraq a little bit longer. Uh, my home u- unit wouldn't let me do it because we had to train up to go to Afghanistan. And, and that was uh, a 15-month deployment, which I ended up staying 18 months for. Uh, <laughs> I guess I just like punishment. Uh, and that's and that's really where the first hand casualties started to to hit me you know that's where um you know john who you've met uh that was the deployment that john got hit on that was the uh deployment that we lost studer on so you know it was it was definitely a lot of it was just the deployment length you know how, how do you keep 
EOD techs in an area working for 15 months without having complacency. You know, you see the same device a hundred times in a row and, you know, you get complacent. You, well, you know, uh, and they should treat EOD exactly like they would with a tier one group or with an SF group or with, uh, with anybody, a ranger group. They're all, you know, 60, 90 days to six months, seven months. And like you said, 18 months is bullshit. And I'll be the first yeah. to say that when your complacency does kill, you know, that firsthand and you know, people close to you that so many people close to you have died. It seemed like for, for the longest time, I'd look at your Facebook profile and it's, it's the black banner. You know, I know that just cause you know, law enforcement and everything else, but it comes down to, you know, these uh, shit, I'll get a little political and these feckless leaders and bullshit. Of, hey, you know what? We don't have enough resources. We'll just use these guys until we don't use them anymore. And and girls, because, you know, it, it's just it's complete ass, brother. You know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I could probably drone on for hours and hours about that subject. But, um, uh, you know, the other part of it was, you know, EOD went from being this really small, relatively unknown career field to now nobody can go anywhere without EOD support. You know, a mm -hmm. convoy goes out and finds a device and now they're held up waiting for us to get escorted out there. Um, usually complaining about how long we take, <laughs> but next thing you know, EOD is everybody knows what it is. And now we're trying to double or triple in size in a really short amount of time. And that meant people weren't free. You know, people weren't promoted because they were ready for the next level people were getting promoted because they needed team leaders, mm -hmm. you know, and that, and then as the losses started ramping up, of course, then the army starts saying, you know, all right, what do we got to do to combat this? And okay, we're got to come up with a team leader certification program. And, you know, then over time, the team leader certification program isn't working because it's not being implemented correctly. And, you know, you're, you're just constantly in this battle of needing people but the people that you have aren't ready to be promoted yet. So, mm -hmm. I completely understand that brother. Um, and that's the same way with any, any bureaucracy or anything we have going on now in the government is promoting the people who shouldn't quite get promoted right away. They need to, you know, you have people two, three years in now that are like, you know, E fives and four years or E sixes. You're like, Holy shit, man. Um, it's interesting in the same way with the officer crew it's, you know, and here's my hit on the officer. I got out as captain. I'd never, I might have made major if I stayed in, uh, but I'd never get past that. I don't have that mentality for it. And I don't have, and you know, most of the time the people when they're majors, they're either cool or they're assholes trying to make it up to the next level. Um, but you know what? We could knock on that shit all day long. It doesn't get us anywhere. Um, just kind of riles us up. But the reality is got a lot of people killed and it's a lot of people killed and that loss from you coming back and retiring and hanging up that uniform and we're going to transition transition into the next phase of this interview into that adrenaline you felt for you know a, a majority of your career a majority of your career was adrenaline fueled whether that's jumping out of a plane whether or not it's, it's in a combat zone whether or not it's leading troops, because that's adrenaline too. You know, your dad popped in a picture a little while ago. Racing is in your blood. 
how did you come back and how did you start the team? So just for the, the audience out there who doesn't know who Daryl Hornbeck is, Daryl and I, like, like you, I told you before, we served together for a bit. Um, but then Daryl has a racing team after action racing, pretty, uh, pretty handy title there after action racing, get it. AAR. So Daryl invited me out. I got behind the wheel and I've chased bad guys. I've done all sorts of really cool shit. But until I got behind that wheel, I've never felt that adrenaline. But it goes beyond the adrenaline. It goes into the that one hour, two hour, however long you're behind the wheel, where only thing you could think about is 10 feet in front of you, 10 feet behind you, 10 feet to the sides of you. And that's all you think about and going fast. And it's just the most incredible experience I've ever had in my life. So you grew up, your dad was racing, um, families into racing. When did you decide to take that next step and say, hey, you know what? Um, this is probably some good shit for, for the veteran community out there. And, you know, it, it expanded beyond the veteran community to, quote, unquote, the protector community. Um, but, yeah, how did, you, how did you start the team? So, you know, like you said, my, my dad's been racing for a really long time. And uh, <laughs> when I retired and I moved back home to a really small logging town, uh, you know, I was helping dad for a couple of years, uh, keep all of his equipment going and stuff like that. And one of his friends, uh, Joe, who's now a good friend of mine, uh, had contacted him from the racing days and said, Hey, I'm getting into this lucky dog racing. You should do it. Like it's so much seat time for the amount of money you put in. And, uh, you know, I was doing metal fabrication on the side. And, uh, you know, dad said, well, I'll have Daryl build the car and, uh, let's go race. So dad found a, uh, 05 Mustang V6 car and, um, brought it home and I got the thing all prepped and we went and raced at the Ridge it was our first race. And well, let's, I'd- let's stop there. When you say prep, and that's the thing I, I really want to bring into this is like, your mechanical aptitude is it's, <laughs> I've never seen anything like it, man. Um, you're always ripping the engines out. You're ripping transmissions. You're doing all of this stuff. Did you have a background in in mechanical operations, mechanical work, being a mechanic? I mean, outside of EOD, because that's a lot of technical, you know, bullshit. Um, you know, I was I was a car guy. I was a car kid. You know, I mean, uh, at my dad's logging shop, there was always, you know, guys building fast cars and things like that, and they would you know, be mechanics in the logging shop during the day. And after work, they'd stay there and work on their cars. So I got kind of indoctrinated in the cars at a pretty young age, you know, on, uh, my stepdad growing up, he had a, uh, shop in Eastern Washington. So, you know, it was like the, my very first car was a 69 Jeepster commando. And, you know, I built the small block 400 that went in it and, um, I've just always been a car guy. You know, when I was stationed in Germany, I, I was drag racing and uh, had a blast doing it. Um, you know, I'd had a chance one time home on leave to jump in one of my dad's little cars on a circle track. And, you know, I kind of thought, well, eh, it's fun, but driving in a circle eh, didn't do much for me. I Drag racing is still more fun. Uh, and then I finally found road racing. You know, I went and tried this. And, uh, most fun I've ever had in a car. I mean, damn near the most fun I've ever had. 
Uh, like yeah. you said, it, it's just hyper focus. You know, you're get in a car for anywhere from an hour to two hours and drive it at a hundred percent. Where, where do you get to do that? Uh, and having other cars like on your bumper or on your side and, you know, it's not a life or death thing. I don't look at it that way. And, it, you know, knocking on wood, hopefully I don't get killed next month. That would suck. But anyway, <laughs> but I'm saying it's not, it's not a life or death thing when you look at it that way, because it's like, you're and these tracks were like you said it's not a circle track it's like an almost like an endurance race where it's like all lots and lots of corners and it's just it's so badass man i i really you know can't explain it until you've done it or you see it or you kind of get next to it yeah and it's it's one of those things too that until you've gotten in the car and you've actually driven it it's not that interesting you know you you get on youtube and uh, do a search for Lucky Dog Racing on YouTube and you'll pull up in-car videos of all sorts of teams putting their videos up. And you start watching it and you're like, okay. Once you've done it, you can watch those videos all day and just be completely entertained. And, you know, I give a huge shout out to Lucky Dog Racing. They're very gracious to the veteran community. Very supportive. Absolutely. Every time I go there, they're like, oh, what do you need? And it's just, I, I really dig them. So I do want to give a, a lot of kudos out to them and a lot of the support they give to the team and to the community. Yeah. Kathy and Greg Fuss are the nicest people on the planet. Uh, I couldn't have this race team if it wasn't for their support. You know, I mean, they're, they've helped out our team so much uh, the, in the, over the past year. And uh, I, I don't think I could ever repay them. And let's, you, you made a good word right there repaying this is not a non-profit and i have to i give a ton of kudos man i it doesn't cost me a dime to go out there other than me paying for a trip and the amount of money and you put into these cars it's kind of a lot brother and even if you have minor sponsorships it does take a lot uh to get these cars running and you've brought a lot of veterans out there and you've brought a lot of first responders out there, and you've brought veteran first responders out there. So, I mean, you're putting a lot into this. And what are you getting out of it? I mean, I obviously I know what I get out of it, but I could see the look on your face, and I could kind of understand. But what is that feeling like to put your put other people behind a wheel and they're like, damn, now they're going to experience what I experience? You know. Um- I'll use John as an example for this. And, and John's actually the reason that I started this team uh, because last year, uh, you know, COVID was happening and half of our race season was uh, canceled. Um, I was talking to a friend of ours and he said, Hey, you should get John a call. You know, he's sounded just really negative last time I talked to him. And, and so I called John, you know, he'd been blown up in 2008, medically retired. Um, now he's a stay at home dad. Uh, and his kids are not going to school and, you know, he just, uh, I called him and he's just, act, I mean, like he had a black cloud over his head and John's always been a race fan though, you know, huge NASCAR fan knows way more about NASCAR than I do. And he starts asking me all about this racing. I said, well, John, why don't you come out and race with me? And he, you know, Holy crap, you know, I can do that. Uh, yeah. So he buys a plane ticket. 
uh, comes out to our race, uh, at the Ridge in September. And, uh, it's, I was so worried, you know, here I am, I'm, I'm taking John who's never been in a race car before. And I'm putting him in a race car during our practice day and trying to talk him through it. And he's getting in the car and it's, it's hard to buckle him in because his hands are shaking. Cause he's just like, this is a, a dream of his. And, uh, he gets out there and does great. You know, I mean, no issues whatsoever. You know, I, I'm totally worried the whole time. And he pulls back in after his practice session and climbs out of the car and he could, I mean, he could barely get his helmet off because his smile was like this wide. And uh, he looked right at me and he said, that is the most fun I've ever had in my life. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was just the best feeling. I mean, here's, here's this, this man, John, who I have the utmost respect for. Um, and to see him come out of that car and he's just experienced racing for his first time and he's just one of his dreams has just come true uh, uh you know when you bring up john i met john at one of the races and i was like man when you talk about really getting blown up he really got blown up and just when i see him get out of the car get into the car be around the cars it's incredible man he's he bought his own suit and here's the deal i want people to understand that this isn't like some crazy dirt track thing where you you buy an old beater and you drive around it this is like bona fide Roll bars, tires, flame retardant suits. I mean, what goes into building one of these cars as far as it comes to cost? Um, it's it's not a little beater car. These are like a lot of... So when you're getting ready for the next race, and you and I are going to race again in October. So if you're getting ready for a race, what goes into that car? How much are we talking about for gas and tires and all this other stuff? Well, quite a bit. Um this is actually the first race that we're going to be heading to that we don't have major repairs going on for both cars. Um, you know, you, you can get into the racing for about $10,000 invested into a car, um, and go out and run C class and, and have a pretty good time. Um, you know, we have a CBA class, uh, a being the fastest. And, you know, my personal view is, I don't like putting beginners in a C-class car because when you're first starting out, you're, you're really a C-class driver. When you couple being a slow driver and also being in a slow car, you spend your entire first race weekend just getting passed, you know, I mean, and mm -hmm. I think that actually takes away from the, the racing experience. So my goal has always been, you come to race, you're going to race a B-class car. Now, it's your first time racing, so you're probably going to be driving C-class times. But once you start getting the hang of it, you have the ability to start passing other cars out there on the track. And uh, so, you know, I've easily got probably 20000 into each car. And um, we go through about $900 in gas on a race weekend and $1,500 in tires. Um, you know, I probably spend about 4,000 a year on brake parts and it, it really does start adding up. I'm sure it does. And I, I know you're very gracious about it and you don't like a handout, but I do want to say during this show that, um, one of the reasons I wanted people to watch a show, listen to your story is that we are going to have 
uh, starting a, a fundraiser would fund the first and we're going to have an auction. It's going to go for a month and we're going to raise some money for the car, try to get some more veterans behind the wheel, try to get some more first responders, trying to get people behind the wheel. And yes, it is catered a lot towards the EOD community right now. And I think it should. I really think it should. Cause like you said, a lot of these people have got thrust into situations for the past decades that they're trying to find themselves out of it. They're trying to find their way out of it. They're trying to get that dark cloud away from their head and getting a behind the wheel and getting that uh, just a, a touch of adrenaline for a little while lasts for a long time. It is, it's like, like, I think you said this before, it's like therapy, a wheel to wheel therapy. Yep. Um, it really is, you know, and I, I, I really commend you for what you're doing, brother. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I try to uh, illustrate the most about this experience is, is not the adrenaline factor. Um, it's the teamwork factor. And, and that's why I think that endurance racing is probably the best format for having a team like this. Um, you know, you're not an individual getting in a race car and getting out there on the track, you're part of a team, you know, I mean, you're going out for an eight hour race and you're driving two hours of it. There's three other drivers in that car. So you're working as a team. Now, right now we're taking out two cars to every race. So we've got eight people all working together to try to finish in the best place we possibly can. So I, I really think that that's something that is missing from our lives after we get out of the military. You know, I mean, from start to finish of your military career, you're part of a team, you're part of a squad, you're part of a platoon, uh, you're part of a career field, whatever it may be, you're always part of something. And there's other people that you're working with towards a common goal. When you get out of the military, you, you know, you don't get that going to a normal job. You know, that part's missing out of your life. You really do need a team and you really need a mission, brother. Absolutely. Uh, one thing I do want to pull up here is we're going to pull up a little little snap. I want to show people what we're looking at when we're talking about after action racing, just so they're, you know, pull up a little YouTube here. Kind of get an idea of what's going on here. This is uh, number 31. Yes. There she That's is. That's our second number 31, actually. <laughs> There's the gray car. 704. Yeah. Yes, yeah. good stuff. And nobody's getting. Yeah, look at that. There it is, right there, brother. And that's our gray car in front of our green car. Oh, yeah. That's awesome, man. That might actually be you driving that car, Jason. Actually, it might be. Oh, yeah, me getting passed by uh, Ed. <laughs> That's definitely <laughs> I me. I wasn't going to say that. but. <laughs> yeah, this is good stuff, brother. So everybody out there, we're going to start up that fundraiser. We're going to get some of these cars. We're going to get some people behind a wheel. And I'm going to say Daryl is because Daryl does all the work. I just kind of use my <laughs> mouth. Uh, and not that way either. That's what she said. Hey, uh, but brother, I really appreciate you coming on. I really, really appreciate you sharing your story and you're always welcome on a show. You're always welcome anywhere. The protectors are brother. And, uh, well, Hey, I I've got to thank you. You've, uh, you've set up our, 
swag shop, uh, done all the t-shirt stuff. You're, uh, um, between you and Nikki Hobson taking care of social media for me, that's been a huge load off my back so that I can focus on completely rebuilding cars multiple times throughout the season. Multiple times. Cause everybody, when Daryl says 20 grand to get a car going, he's not talking about those times. The transmission blows, the engine blows. There is so much that goes into these things, brother. Yeah, I've been through uh, four engines, a transmission, uh, and two wrecks uh, this season. So it's, <laughs> it's been a lot of work. Well, brother, I appreciate everything you do, and we will see you next month. All right. Thank you.